John 1, we'll look at verses 1 through 12, uh, really as a pretext for and reference back to 19 through 28. Um, as we work our way through the Gospel of John, uh, John's uh, proving, as he says in uh, John uh, 20, 31, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that by believing you may have life in his name. Uh, we start with John chapter 1. Uh, verse 1, this is God's word, eternally true. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a, a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now uh, look down to verse 19. Verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, confess but confess freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now, some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Here ends our reading. There's a response of thankfulness printed for you in your bulletin and, and up on the screen. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks indeed. Let's pray. Some of you know that uh, Betsy and I uh, were involved with uh, Crew for 10 years, which when we were involved, it was called Campus Crusade for Christ. We were involved four years as a student, both, both of us, and, and uh, then six years as uh, full-time staff people. And so we both came on staff when we graduated from college. Betsy finished early, so she went on staff six months earlier, and then I came on the staff of Campus Crusade, and then we got married a month later, and, and uh, Betsy had been raising support on, on staff with Campus Crusade. You raise all your own support. There are no central funds. I used to have to say that a lot when we meet with people for support. <laughs> no central funds. So everything we were paid, everything that paid our insurance, any retirement, any, uh, our, our salary was money that we had gone to people and churches and asked, would you support us each month or, or give us some kind of annual gift or even just a one-time gift here to, to go out and, and um, be supported. And, and, so, and so we could eat, eat food, you know, the code. And uh, uh, we were trained well in uh, Campus Crusade and, and support raising. Other organizations would come to Campus Crusade for their support uh, raising training. And one of the things we were taught was that, you know, as you brainstorm names of people you can ask to support you, to put them in three lists. And one is a most likely list, most likely to support you. You know, and so that would be like people who are like relatives who are devoted believers and excited that you're you know, going to be ministering on a college campus to share the gospel. You know, those would be most likely. And then you'd have likely. And then you had the third category, least likely. And those, and so you, you called, of course, guess who you called first? Your most likely. And then when you ran out of those names, you came to your, 
your likelies. And then when you're out of those names, you went to your least, least likelies and said, well, who knows? <laughs> but I think as we, um, as we think about unbelievers, um, we can think on those terms as well. Uh, we, I think if you're like me, you naturally think, oh, this person uh, is likely to believe in Jesus, even though they don't now. Um, something about their life or who they are or whatever. And then you think there's another group. Well, maybe. And then there's a group that say, no way. And we say of those people, they're really far from Christ. As if we weren't. Um, and, and so we, we can uh, put people in these different categories when we think about people coming to faith in Jesus. But what this text tells us and what John's telling us here throughout his gospel, which he, he starts telling us here in chapter 1, is that we should not think in those terms. Um, we naturally do, uh, but we shouldn't. Uh, if you like to fill out blanks in an outline, here we go. If you want to just listen, that's, that's fine too. The first thing God says to us here from this passage is this. Number one, for what to believe and how to live, focus upon Jesus. For what to believe and how to live, focus upon Jesus. Uh, we see this focus upon Jesus uh, coming out in verses 7 and 8. It was John's uh, focus. Uh, verses 20 and 24, when John was asked about himself, he told them, don't focus upon me. I'm not the Christ. Um, we see this in verse 27 as well. Uh, but A, there in your outline, A, focus on Jesus because as we see here in this text, John the Baptist's whole life was about pointing to Jesus. We'll see later in uh, John 3, I think it is. Yeah, John 3. That, that, um, John, it's where he famously says, he must increase. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Disciples have come to John the Baptist and said, Jesus' disciples are baptizing more than you are. And John says, good. <laughs> he must increase. And I must decrease. This was John the Baptist's whole life. This was the reason he was born. And we read about that in Luke, where we read about Jesus' mother and, and father, Zechariah, you know, his father. And they, they were old and they had no children, no child. And that John the Baptist is a, a, a miracle child, a miracle conception. And that uh, from his time of conception, uh, Zechariah is told that he will announce the way of the king. Um, so John the Baptist's whole life was about pointing to Jesus. And so set verses seven and eight, we see that there. So look at verse seven. He, John the Baptist, came as a witness to testify uh, concerning that light, Jesus, so that through him all men might believe. Verse eight, he himself, John the Baptist, was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So you see this, John the Baptist, his whole reason for being is to be a witness, to point people to Jesus. And so we should hear John the Baptist and be pointed to Jesus, be focused upon him. Um, B, focus upon Jesus, not just because John the Baptist did and we like John the Baptist, but focus upon Jesus because Jesus is the Christ. That's why John the Baptist is saying focus upon Jesus, because Jesus is the Christ. Uh, number one there, B1, um, the Christ, the anointed one, um, is the king. You know that from the last two months. <laughs> and before that, if you've been in the church for a while. Uh, the Christ means the anointed one, and the one who is anointed was the king. And so the Levites and, and priests uh, come, and, and, and these people ask, and they have to give an answer to those who sent them in Jerusalem as they go talk to John the Baptist. Are you the Christ? And they're asking, are you the king? We haven't had a king for 600 years. Are you, are you he? Um, and this is why John in verse 27, look there. Um, John, not now, these are all Jews, so they don't say, did you know Christ means king? Because <laughs> they're Jews, they knew it. We're the ones that have to be taught that because we don't know. Uh, but, but, but they say, are you the Christ? He says, I am not. But, but you also see this in verse 27. Look there. He says, He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy 
to untie. He's the king. And John the Baptist could understand he's coming not just from the house of David, not just from Bethlehem, but as we talked about before, from heaven itself. And John's been emphasizing that, that Jesus is the king who's not only son of David come from Bethlehem, human king, but he's also son of God, eternal king, um, who's second person in Trinity, always existing, but come to be the king of God's people. And so John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. This is, this is language of, uh, that you'd speak of a king being unworthy. Um, so number two there, as a Christian, follow the king. That's one of the messages throughout the, the Gospel of John. Follow the king. Um, not a wandering citizen or foreigner. Think Old Testament foreigner. You wouldn't follow an Egyptian. You wouldn't follow an Assyrian. You wouldn't follow a Babylonian. You wouldn't follow a Greek. Or if you lived during Jesus' day or the days of the disciples, you wouldn't follow a Roman. Okay, you follow, you follow the king. In Deuteronomy 17, it tells us that the king was to have a his own copy of the law and read it all the days of his life. That was unique. They didn't have printing presses back in Israel. People didn't have a written copy of the law who were faithful Jews. But the king did. He had his own copy, and he could read it every day of his life. The, the rest of the Jews had to hear it when they came to worship, uh, taught by the, pre the priests and the Levites and occasionally the king. Uh, but but you follow the king. The king would have his own copy of the law so that he would follow it and so that he would need, lead the nation in following the law of God so that they would experience the blessings of the covenant, Deuteronomy 28, and not the curses of the covenant. This is why the prophets, when they rise up, they typically go to the king because the king's the one with the copy of the law who is to lead the people in faithfulness to the God who saved them, who pulled them out of Egypt and has been blessing them in the promised land. And so the prophet goes to the king and says, here's the law, what's up? <laughs> You're not following it. And that's why our borders have been invaded. And that's why our towns have been on fire by foreign invaders. And so you follow the king who's faithful. And Jesus being our king, being the Christ, we follow him. And so last week we, we looked at that. We looked to Jesus we look to Jesus to know God and to walk in his, in, in his ways. So as a Christian, follow the king, not a wandering citizen or a foreigner, or put in our terms, um, not a wandering or undevout Christian or a non-believer. Don't follow a Babylonian. Don't follow a Roman soldier. Don't follow someone who's not in the church today. Don't follow someone who's not following Christ well. Follow someone who has God's law, who's reading it and walking in his ways. That's who you follow. And as you follow that person, you're following the king. As you read scripture and see what Jesus has said and what he's taught and what the word has put into this, into this book, um, then you're walking, walking in blessing there. So follow the king, not a wandering citizen or foreigner. Um, don't see any old Christian and use him or her as justification well, he's doing it. Well, is what he what he's doing is is that following God's law? Is that following His commands? Is that according to the character of God? Um, so don't 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 use a, a wandering Christian or a Christian who's not devout and 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 of sincere and wholehearted uh, faith in the Lord as an excuse for walking in a, a way that's errant or doing what you want to do. Um, don't follow those who aren't concerned about faithfulness to God. Um, those who weren't concerned about faithfulness to God were shouting for Jesus' crucifixion. You realize that those, that was the church. And they saw Jesus and shouted for his crucifixion. So don't look at other church people unless you see that they're following the ways of the Lord. Um, those shouting for the crucifixion were not foreigners to Israel. They were Israel. They were church people. So be careful who you look uh, to as an example, um, guide or, or evaluate their lives and whether they're worthy of following by seeing how well they adhere to Scripture. Um, and certainly don't follow the um, don't follow the ways of an unbeliever. Um, Peter talks about that in First Peter four, 
Peter's talking to people who had been uh, a lot of Gentiles in the audience that Peter's writing to. As he's writing to people who live in modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor during that day, and and he says, "I know that the people used to run, you used to run with." He says this in the first four verses of First Peter four. The people used to run with are mocking you and say, "Hey, why aren't you running with us anymore? Why aren't you doing these things anymore?" Um, and, and so, but we look above and follow our king. Um, so see, see, don't look beyond Jesus and those who follow him well. Don't look beyond Jesus to set the course for your life, behavior, and beliefs about life and eternity. Jesus says, Matthew four nineteen, as he says to person after person, come, follow me. Come, follow me, Jesus said. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's what he says. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So Christ is our king. He's our leader. He's one who guides us in life. Uh, his example of how he interacts with people and different kinds of people is something we should follow and emulate. Um, so for what to believe and how to live, focus upon Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist tells us that. He's the Christ. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal, and I follow him. Uh, you'll see in another couple weeks here, as we go, and you can let your eyes, eyes trail down in your Bibles there. Um, you know, Jesus has his disciples, uh, Andrew and, and um, John, um, follow Jesus. Go. Go with him. And they follow Jesus. And there they are forever. they gone from John. Now, John knew this was good and right. That anyone who would follow, he was there. He was there. Uh, to prepare the way and to send people, to point people to Jesus. Um, now, number two, number two, um, look to Jesus because he will save you. Okay. And for you, most of you here, almost all of you here this morning, he has saved you. So continue to look to the one who saved you. Look to the one who's done the most for you and follow him. He's proven his love for you. And so follow him. Uh, if he would die for you, for you to spend eternity with him, he would give you good advice on how to live. Um, so look to Jesus because he will save you. Um, look at verse 23 here. Look down there. When they say, okay, you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet. These were, you know, the, the best things they could come up with. Who are you? What do you say for yourself? And he quotes Isaiah 40 that Bob read for us. Um, Isaiah 40, and he says, uh, I am the one, uh, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight a way for the Lord. Uh, so A there, um, 2A, John the Baptist was just making the road smooth or straight for Jesus. He's making the road smooth or straight for Jesus to come in, and connect with his people. So we go back to Isaiah 40. That's what's important here. Jews knew what this was talking about. We don't. Because Jews knew that the Old Testament, that's all they had. And we rightly look at the New Testament because that talks about Jesus. But Jesus essentially gets defined well in the Old Testament. Isaiah 40 is talking about when Isaiah makes this turn at chapter 40 in Isaiah 40, and he starts talking about the Babylonian crisis. He's talking about Assyria until that point. And he's, he's ministering, uh, Isaiah is during, during the days of um, Hezekiah at, at the end is who, uh, who he's uh, ministering during. And Hezekiah starts having interaction with the Babylonians. And so Isaiah, at the Lord's um, uh, leading, starts talking about the Babylonians and what they will mean for God's people about 100 years before the exile. Okay, so Isaiah is about 700, exiles at 600. And, and what Isaiah tells forward is this. You will be exiled, but God will come to you and rescue you. That was a big question in the Old Testament. When God exiles us, will he abandon us forever? 
You probably recognize that language from the Psalms, especially from the Psalms written in exile. You know, there are Psalms that were written in exile. Will you abandon us, O Lord, forever? Here we are in exile. Are we still your people? We think we are, but this is a long exile. Will you abandon us forever? But the prophets say, as they, prophet after prophet, these writing prophets we have in the, the Old Testament, there are more prophets than those who wrote books. These writing prophets say, God will exile you, but then they always say, but he will bring you back. And Isaiah 40 is talking about God bringing back the people and that God will uh, uh, shoot in to Babylon. That's the road being made straight. It's God, it's, it's the picture of God coming from the promised land to go fetch his people off in Babylon. Or if you're looking at a map, coming from Israel to fetch you know, off to the east, the people in Babylon. And, and it was a rough road between Israel and Babylon. There was desert. That's what's being talked about here. There's the mountainous area. There are valleys. And so that's what you see here, that, that God, when he comes, when he decides to bring his people back from exile, back from their punishment for their sins in the promised land, that the road will be made straight. It'll be a fast highway. Um, there's a little stretch of road. It's the end of Shotwell Road. Um, and it's all uh, dirt and rocks. There's a little segment. You know it if you're over from that, that, that area. Um, and, and you always go left and, and it becomes major slade then. But if you go straight... It, it, Shotwell Road turns into dirt and rocks. And so I wanted to save time one time. And so I shot into that road. There's an old church that's falling down that no one's been in for 50 years there. And, and pretty soon, you know, I was I was breaking my, you know, all kinds of things on my axle, I think. Uh, my CV joints, I think I did in there. Because there are little potholes and dust flying everywhere and rocks and gravel going. And I really had to slow down. Uh, but that's the message in Isaiah 40, that the valleys will be raised up and the mountains will be flattened and God will get, come from the promised land over to his people. And when he decides to save his people, bring them back from their punishment, rescue them from their punishment and bring them into the promised land, it will be swift. That's what Isaiah is talking about to the people prior to their exile. So they would know, they would remember when they get in exile, God will come to us. And one day it'll look like he's abandoned us. And the very next day, he will bring us back into the promised land. It'll be fast. And that's not just Isaiah saying this, but other prophets say this as well. And so John the Baptist says, I'm this voice. And it's not yet. It happened before when God brought his people physically back from Babylon, but you know from Jesus, you know from the book of Hebrews, that the whole Old Testament prefigures Jesus, who he is and what he would do. And so John the Baptist says, here's who I am. I'm not the Christ. I'm not God come to the earth to save you, to rescue you from the punishment for your sins. But I'm the one who's making the way straight for him. I'm the one who's enabling him to connect with his people to save them. I'm the one making the valleys come up and the mountains go down so you don't have to slow down when you come to the mountain to get over it and you know, wait for the, the, the pregnant mothers and, and, and the crippled men you know, to help them go over the mountain. If it's just straight, you can go fast like when you're on a newly paved road on the highway, right? And all of a sudden it's smooth and you're buzzing along. And John the Baptist said, that's, that's who I am. I'm the one who arrives right before God restores his people, right before God rescues this whole group of people, his chosen people, from their sins. And so I'm a voice crying in the desert. And this is literally true for John the Baptist, but it was figuratively true as well. It looked to John the Baptist's positioning was literally between the promised the promised land proper. He's on the other side of the Jordan and Babylon. And he says, that's who I am. And so there's one coming. And just like in the Old Testament, when God rescued his people from Babylon, there was one coming, God himself, to bring his people back uh, from their exile to Babylon 
into the promised land, that they might enjoy the blessings of the promised land again, that they might be saved from their exile, that they might be saved from the punishment of their sins, as Isaiah 40 says. And so John the Baptist says, this is, this is, who, this is who I am. Um, so John the Baptist is making the road smooth. He's saying, everybody, look to Jesus. He's your salvation. He's coming for you. He will save you. Get that? Um, it's like Isaiah warning the people, um, God's coming for you and he's going to save you. And when in their actual day, when Cyrus, king of Persia, comes in and says, okay, you can all go home and rebuild your temple and here's some wood and here's some cattle and here's some gold and here's some silver so you can do it. End of Second Chronicles, beginning of Ezra. Pack up your stuff and go. Go back. Now B. So just putting this together, Jesus came to the earth to come to his people and save them. Okay, this was prefigured in God rescuing his people from exile, rescuing them from their punishment in Babylon. It was God coming to rescue his people um, through uh, Cyrus the king or Darius the king of Persia. But now he's coming by Jesus. God himself is coming to his people to save them, to give them light and life. Those are your blanks there, which John has been talking about in chapter four or in verse four and verse nine. Um, so uh, these are the uh, who, who are these persons Jesus came to save is the next question we look at um, John the Baptist comes and says God is coming to save his people he's making the valleys flat and the mountains or mountains flat and raising up the valleys God is coming to, to save his people he makes that way clear for Jesus to come and, and he baptizes Jesus anoints him as king. He Christ's him. He messiahs him as king. He anoints him as king. And then Jesus goes to work, saving his people, uh, saying, hear the good news. Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. So um, who are these people Jesus came to save? That's your number three. Uh, and John has this to say to us. Uh, expect, uh, expect persons of every kind. Expect persons of every kind. That is, all sorts of people, persons of every kind, all sorts of people to believe in Jesus. Now, the Jews uh, and even those that John is writing to in 60 years after Jesus' crucifixion, uh, Jewish Christians John's writing to as he writes the Gospel of John, um, they would have expected that God would come to save the Jews. First of all, just from the Romans not what Jesus did, but secondly, really, he'd come to save the Jews, not the nations, not everybody. Uh, and that was the big question for John's audience. Why have not our brothers and sisters, our Jewish brothers and sisters, accepted this new king that God has sent to us and anointed for us by John the Baptist to save us? Why, is, why have most of the Jews rejected Jesus? We saw it in verse 11. Did you see it there? Uh, most of the Jews rejected Jesus. And so that was the big question. Um, but expect persons of every kind, all sorts of people, to believe in Jesus. Um, most had not received him. I'm going to use a word that uh, is not used much. We use it a ton in, in American Christianity to receive Christ, right? We've heard that expression. Um, Verses 11 and verses 12 are the two cases in all of Scripture where you see the word received used in, in relation to having saving faith. That's it. So it's not a big word. We use it like it's the main word. Have you received Christ? But it's really only used here. The Jews did not receive him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And then verse 12, but as many as received him. So it's a legitimate word to use about saving faith and having saving faith in Jesus. But just realize it's a very, uh, uh, not a very well-used word by God when he inscripturated um, there because it's a word that really doesn't describe an individual today in the 21st century having faith in Jesus. It does when we understand this context. Jesus came into the world and he was rejected. But a few people received him. 
When he came into the world, a few people said, oh yes, Jesus, come into my house. But most people said, nope, get back out of here. <laughs> so that's the sense of receive and, and reject. Um, so it, it does have that meaning for us of, of personal faith, uh, but really it's this big context of when the gospel comes to you, do you receive it or reject it? Uh, but, but So I'm going to use that word a bunch because John uses it here. Um, a, um, when we look at verse 7 and verse 9 of uh, John 1, um, look at verses 7 and 9. Um, we should understand what John is asserting and what he's not asserting. Um, look there. So verse 7. Uh, he came, John the Baptist came, as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. Now look at verse 9. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. So what's John saying? What's John not saying? It's the same word, all and every, that John uses here. Um, A, John doesn't, A in your outline, John doesn't assert that all persons will believe. Okay? John doesn't assert that all persons will believe. So let's talk about this. Because he uses the word all and every, doesn't he? Now, let's talk about why that's not what he's talking about. Um, number one, you know this from experience. You know that all men will not believe. If all men believed, there wouldn't be seats enough in every single church in Clayton to fit every single person who lives in Clayton. We'd be overwhelmed if, if people were standing here, you know, chest to back against everybody else. There would not be enough room in all churches for uh, the, all the believers. So we know, but unless we live in a fantasy world, right, that all men don't believe. And they all men have not believed when Jesus was around, when the apostles were around, and all through every century. So we just, we say, you know what? If scripture is saying that all men will believe, well, that's, I'm in a faith crisis right now. I either have to deny, you know, like charismatics when they believe that God will heal everybody. <laughs> you know, they're in a faith crisis because they know people who have died. And people who have died are people who didn't get healed. And they know Christians who have died, so they're in a faith crisis. God's not promising that he'll heal everybody. God's not promising that he'll bring everyone to faith. So first of all, you just know that. But be relieved you're not saying God claims this and it's not true. God's not claiming it. Number two, number two, John uh, states it that uh, not all men will believe. And he shows it repeatedly in his gospel from the start. Look at verse 11. Could John possibly mean when he says that all men might believe, that every person might believe? Verse 11, when Jesus comes from the get go, he, Jesus, came to that which was his own, the Jews, but his own did not receive him. So contextually, we know when John uses this word, all every, um, it's, it's like, you know, remember Pan-American or like the Pan-American games. That's the word he's using, pan, okay, there. It means all or every, but it doesn't mean each and every, each and every person. Um, but John states uh, that this is not what I mean when I say that all men might believe. Um, three, Jesus states it clearly and many times. So John 3.16, he states it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that all have eternal life. No. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes. Whoever believes, that means people don't. And listen to what Jesus says as he goes on from John 3.16. Whoever believes shall not perish like those who don't believe. But I have eternal life. Verse 18, John 3, 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. What John communicates to us is what Jesus was communicating to John is that the rule is that men don't come to the light. They don't come to Jesus. 
That's the rule. Most don't believe. Or as Jesus will later say, as he's talking to his disciples on the eve of his death, the world will hate you because it hated me. So John's not speaking here of um, everyone uh, believing. John 6.36, Jesus says, But I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe, he says to this Jewish crowd. John 6.44, No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay, so people don't have the ability even to believe, to come to Jesus, unless the Father intervenes. And we know from Jesus that the Father elects some, that the Father has chosen some, 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Now, number four, number four. So, so we know John is not saying everyone believes, but he's saying every sort or every kind. We know it from experience. We know it because John says it throughout his gospel and proves it, shows it throughout his gospel. Jesus says it over and over and teaches this throughout his gospel that most won't believe. And then four, we know from the New Testament and from history that most Jews of the first century did not receive, most Jews of the first century did not receive Jesus as the Christ, their king. So again, verse 11, it came to those who were who, that which was his own and his own did not receive him. Um, John eighteen forty, the Jews shouted back when Pilate says, who shall I release? Shall I release to you, Jesus, your king? And the Jews shout back, this is John 18, 40. They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. <laughs> um, the Jews did not receive. We know this from the first century. John nineteen fifteen. when Pilate brings Jesus back again. Uh, what shall I do with Jesus, your king? They say, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Then Acts 13, 45, Paul speaking to his fellow Jews in the synagogues, which was typical for Paul going to a city that had a synagogue. He went there because Jewish people were there. They knew the Old Testament, so they knew that Jesus, he could prove to them from the, New, from the Old Testament, he could prove to them from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Christ. So we'd go to the Jews in the synagogues. And in Acts 13, uh, 45, um, he's in Pisidian, Antioch, in Turkey. And um, he had been uh, sharing with them the message that Jesus was the son of David, the Christ. And this message of Jesus being king was rejected by most of the Jews there. And they began, quote, to talk abusively against what Paul was saying. Okay, so we know that, that not all believe. Okay, so... We've proven that four times over now that that's not what John is meaning here in uh, chapter one. So B, what is John saying? What John asserts is not that all persons will believe, but that every kind, every kind of person, all sorts of people will believe. That's what he's talking about in verses seven and nine. And he shows this throughout his gospel. Uh, the word John uses here in verse 7, all, and then in verse 9, every, it's the same word, it just depends on the context, whether you say, translate it all or every, is not a word to describe each and every 100% of people, but it's a word that means, and if you look up in a Greek dictionary, it means every sort, every kind, all sorts, that's the word, all sorts, every kind, but you don't have to just trust in me knowing Greek and you don't, and so I'm going to wield a power over your head. What you can do is check out, does this definition fit with what John does through the rest of the gospel? In other words, if we take this, that, that, that all might believe, that every person might receive the light, if we take this as John's definition, which is a Greek definition, you know, Greek definition of the word, um, does that fit with the rest of what John says in the gospel? And the answer is, of course, because I'm preaching this to you, Yes, it does. Um, and so um, John, uh, John uses this word um, to describe and to explain, get the context here, Gospel John, to explain to these Jews why it's the case at AD 90 that most of the people who have believed are not their brother and sister Jews. Most of the people are Gentiles. That was true statistically in the first century church, but it was still a cause of 
bewilderment for John's audience. Why has my father and my mother not believed? Why has my brother not believed in Jesus? Shouldn't they have? I mean, Paul is, you know, maybe some of them heard from Paul. He was dead a long time by the time this was written. But but I heard this. Jesus was proved when people were preaching in, in the um, first century, largely they were using the Old Testament and then pointing to Jesus and the things that had been told of Jesus, what he did and how Jesus fulfilled those things. So they were wondering, why is it the case that this hodgepodge of people have believed. And John is showing them that was the way it was from the beginning. From when Jesus first came here. And John gets that out right at the beginning. Verse 11. He came to that which was his own. His own did not receive him. But to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. And that's who you're sitting with at AD 90. All who have received him. And it's really primarily not the Jews. Even though Jesus came to them first. They shouted, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. That's what the Jews, that, that was their reception of Jesus. And that's why you should not be surprised that you're surrounded by a largely Jewish covenant community called the church. So what John asserts is that every kind of person will believe. And he shows this throughout his gospel. So that's your B point. He shows this throughout his gospel. Um, so your next line there. Here, we're going to go through what John does. We're just going to restrict ourselves to the gospel of John to show us that John is making this point in his gospel, that all kinds, all sorts, every kind of person believes in Jesus. And you just never know who it is, who's, who it's going to be. So here's your, here's your sentence. Those who receive Jesus, see where I am there? Those who receive Jesus included all sorts of people, Colon. Now we're going to talk about all the sorts of people in the Gospel of John who believe. First, non-Jews. Non-Jews. He makes that point in, in chapter 1, verse 11. Um, but also in, in uh, chapter 10, verse 16, all these Gentiles are coming in. Um, next, a few non-cleric but religious Jews. In chapter 1, verse 40, we see that there are these two religious Jews. They're not Levites, cleric means you're a religious professional. Um, they're, they're not Levites, they're not Pharisees, but Andrew and John followed Jesus. And they had been hanging out with John the Baptist. So they were religious Jews, they just weren't clerics. John the Baptist was technically a cleric, he just wasn't serving in that role. He was a priest. His father was a priest, Zechariah, but he was a prophet. So he's one of those figures in scripture who's two of the three offices in scripture. Um, he's a prophet and a priest, uh, John the Baptist is. Uh, but but there are so, so there are some non-cleric but religious Jews who believe. That's 140. It's a Andrew and, and John. Uh, but then there are less religious Jews um, who believe, um, who, who uh, come along and believe in Jesus. Uh, so they're people who are just kind of there. Uh, then there are two Pharisees, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They were both on the Jewish ru ruling council, the Sanhedrin that condemned Jew Jesus to death. But they were believers in Jesus and they assisted in getting Jesus buried. They made sure Jesus had a proper burial. So they're, it, it's not just the Jews don't believe. You do have some Jews that believe, but they're this hodgepodge is just every sort. You have some who are kind of religious and not cleric. You've got some clerics like Joseph of Arimathea and, and, and Nicodemus. And you've got some run-of-the-mill um, uh, run-of-the-mill Jews like Peter, who's a fisherman, who believes. Um, and then you also have um, uh, uh, an immoral Samaritan woman. That's who we saw in chapter four. Um, so a couple of things, you know, she's three categories. <laughs> she's immoral, right? She's had five husbands and she's living with another guy. Okay, so, and she comes to faith and she spreads her faith, doesn't she? She says, if he's not the Christ, who could be? She says to her uh, um, 
fellow Samaritan people in Sychar there. So she's immoral, first of all. She's, she's a woman. You see the disciples say they were surprised Jesus was talking to a woman. So yes, even women can believe. You're really surprised at that, aren't you? <laughs> but also she's a Samaritan. And you see that, that uh, uh, view there uh, uh, in, in the text that Jews normally did not talk to Samaritans. That was a surprise that a Samaritan would believe. And so you see this immoral Samaritan woman believe. And then, chapter 4, verse 39, Samaritans in general. The town comes out and some of them believe because of the, the witness of this woman. But then they hear Jesus' words and they believe and they tell the woman, we don't believe any longer because of what she told us, because of your witness. We believe because we heard him talk and now we're really convinced. This was outlandish for a Jewish person to think, that a Samaritan, a non-Jew, they were half Jewish. They didn't accept the, old, the whole Old Testament as scriptural. Just the first five books, the, just the books of Moses, the Samaritans said, and this is why they were looked down upon by Jews. But even they can believe and do. And then verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 46, a Roman official believes and comes to Jesus and believes and understands who Jesus is and what his power is. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, a paralyzed man believes, this man at the well who waits there and, and can't get into the well fast enough to be healed. And Jesus heals him and says, pick up your mat and walk. This paralyzed man. So another sort of person, a crippled person who Jews saw as cursed by God because he was paralyzed. So another person in the, the least likely category, right? Those three categories. Um the paralyzed man, the man who was obviously cursed by God and had earned God's disfavor. A Roman official, not a covenant person, another least likely there. A Samaritan, another least likely there. All these people um, who are least likely as well as most likely. Two people on the Jewish ruling council. Okay, So there are people in all these categories. Or there's the middle person like, like Peter and fishermen and, and, and some of the people that followed Jesus who were among the 500 that Jesus appeared to in his resurrection. Uh, so all kinds of people. Uh, next, after the paralyzed man, we have a man born blind. Um, a man born blind. Chapter 9, verse 1. The, first, the way this whole chapter starts out is the disciples say, before you even find out there's a blind man really, they say, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because he's blind. So who sinned, this man or his parents? So he's at least likely there. Again, all sorts of people, all kinds of people, every kind of person can believe in Jesus. And then uh, chapter 12, verses 20 through 22, Greeks. Greeks come to, Jesus, come to Jesus, they actually come to Philip and they say, we would like to see Jesus. Um, so Greeks come, non-Jews, not likely to come to Jesus, but they do, they travel to see him. And then even you see a hint of it by John here in his account that uh, above Jesus' cross in chapter 19, verses 19 and 20, that Pilate communicates to all that this is the king of the Jews by putting that message in Aramaic, which was the common language of the Jews, in Latin, which was the language of Rome, and in Greek, which was the, the language that was all over the place, kind of like English today. You can be in lots of countries and speak English and and there are people who speak it as a second language and you can get by. Um, that was Greek during the day. So people of various languages. So you see the variance here of the types of people, high in society, low in society, highly religious, irreligious, moral, immoral. From this place, from that place, this nationality, that nationality, this religion, that religion, and all these kinds of people come to Jesus. Every kind of person can get light from Jesus. So, verse four, verse four. So this is what John means when he says, when he says there in verse seven, he came as John the Baptist came as a witness to testify concerning that light, that through him all kinds of men might believe, every sort. Or verse verse nine, um, the true light that gives light to all kinds of men was coming into the world, not just the Jews. And then verse eleven. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all, everyone, 
every kind of person, all sorts of people who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Okay, you see how that contextually fits and the other doesn't. We always want to define the words by context in which they're used. Okay, or else you misdefine, you misdefine words. Okay, um, so if you say he's really bad, you need some context for that. Does that mean he's cool or does that mean he's evil? You need context. That's how we define words. Okay, so number four, number four, um, that non-Jews and lots of different kinds of people received Jesus as king, Christ, was, as I mentioned before, unexpected. This was unexpected. Okay, now you can look, we can look now in, in hindsight at the Old Testament and say, oh yeah, there are plenty of places in the Old Testament that communicate that the gospel, the good news, that, that the nations will stream to Jerusalem and believe. But really, in the Old Testament, you know, we've got um, Ruth and we've got Rahab, Eleazar from Damascus, who is Abraham's servant, um, but not a lot of people who aren't descended from Abraham, descended from Jacob, who believe. And so this was, to John's audience, this was in the first century a surprise that the covenant people had become people from all nations, people from various religions, all sorts of people, people that the Jews considered to be cursed, people that the Jews considered to be their enemies, like the Roman official, had come to faith. Uh, people like Theophilus, a Roman official to whom uh, Luke wrote his books, Luke and, and, and Acts, had come to faith. So um, this was unexpected. Um, chapter 4, uh, verse 27, uh, when we see uh, the Samaritans uh, come to faith, um, this, is, this, is a weird, this is a weird thing. Now, A, um, we too, this is what I was talking about when we first started talking this morning, we too don't, we don't expect the non-religiously oriented today in our lives with the people around us. We don't expect the non-religiously oriented, the never been in a church, that's your next little segment there, the never been in the church, the immoral, and here's the big one, the non-nice persons to receive Jesus. We don't expect them to. If they're not religiously oriented, um, what else have I said here? If, they're, if they've never been in the church, if they're immoral, and in the midst, in the midst of immorality, in the midst of it, you know it, they know it, they're bragging about it. And if they're not nice, we don't expect them to receive Jesus, but we should. Um, and, and that's where we get the expression, oh, he's really far from Christ. Who's far from Christ? Everybody's far from Christ. Um, the woman Jesus spoke to at the well in Samaria, a non-Jewish area. Look at her. She's, she's interested in what Jesus had to say, though she was immoral. Uh, you know, five husbands and sleeping with someone else who's not her husband at the current time. Yet she wants to know where to worship. She's interested in living water. It says, give me some of that water. Um, she's eager for an anointed king. She gets to the topic. We know, well, the Christ is going to appear. And he says, I who speak to you am he. And what she do with that information? She believes and she goes and talks to all these people whom... If you've heard anyone else talk on John 4, they say the, the Samaritan woman was at the well in the heat of the day because she was shamed by everyone in her community because they all knew she was immoral. And so she came to the well when no one else would come to the well when it was hot. Everyone else came at the beginning of the day or maybe at the end of the day. And yet she's so convinced that Jesus is the Christ. She goes and tells everybody, come listen to this man. He told me everything I ever did. And I know you guys know what I've done and that you don't care what I say, but come listen to him. Could he be the Christ? Who else could be? He's told me everything I've ever, I've ever done. But she's eager for the anointed king, the Christ, to appear. And when Jesus tells, you, tells her, I who speak to you am he, she believes and tells her own, own village. That takes some guts. 
to face these people who all shamed her, who knew who she was. She believed she's in all sorts. She's a least likely. She's not a nice person. She's not a moral person. She's not a religious person. And yet she believes. John 4, 39, many of the Samaritans from the, that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did was her testimony. And the Samaritan said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. So don't think of your friends um, in categories or don't think of someone you know at work in categories of, oh, he might believe because he's moral. Um, if he's immoral, if he's irreligious, if he hates Christians, guess who hated Christians? Saul of Tarsus. And he believed. All the Jewish community was saying, Saul of Tarsus, he'll never believe. Right? When they hear in Damascus that Saul is believed and Ananias is told to take, in Damascus is told to take Saul in, he says, Saul? You mean... I'm going to die if I go up to him and say I'm a Christian. Um, they didn't expect Saul of Tarsus was the least likely. So B, B, know that every kind of person, every kind of person receives Jesus, but very often it's the nice, very often it's the nice, moral, and religious who don't. Know that nice people are likely to reject Jesus. Nice people are probably more likely to reject Jesus than the crude, than the immoral, uh, than, than those who are don't care and are, are living in, in what you'd say, say is active rebellion against any kind of morality. Um, they're often the ones who don't. Look at Jesus' life. Learn that lesson. Who are the religious people of Jesus' day, the Jews, and what's their reception of Jesus? They did not receive him. In fact, they made sure he got crucified. So, number one there, the nice, moral, and religious often don't see their need for Jesus. They don't see their need. Why would I need Jesus? Or maybe they believe in Jesus, but not savingly. Not with any repentance. Not with any, Jesus, I need you to forgive my sins. Because, well, I'm a good person. I'm not like one of those. I almost included for you, but it was just too much for Bob to read. Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector who come to t the temple to pray. And the, the Pharisee says, thank you, God, that you have not made me like this man, this sinner. You know, I, I fast and I pray and I, I tie the tenth of even my, my spices. And Jesus says, but the one who walked away justified was the sinner who beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said he walked away that day justified, not the man who justified himself and gloried and rested in his niceness, in his religiousness. Those are the hard people in our lives to, to come to faith, so to speak. If anyone's hard to come to faith, it's those people who are nice because they don't see they don't see the need. It's like Jesus in the passage that that Bob did read this morning from Luke seven. Who sees her need for Jesus? It's the sinful woman, and she comes in. She breaks into Simon the Pharisee's house with the most expensive, the best thing she has, and anoints Jesus' feet, and she weeps and washes his feet with her hair, and Jesus tells her, "Your sins are forgiven." for you loved much. She loves Jesus because Jesus has, as he's just pointed out to Simon, because she's been forgiven of a great debt. Even Simon the Pharisee recognizes this. Who loves me more? The one I forgive a ton or the one I forgive a little? Who's going to be more loyal to me? Who's going to go all out and take the most expensive, the most valuable thing they have and pour it out at my feet? It's going to be the one who recognizes his or her need for forgiveness. And so don't despair in your lives with your, your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister or your children who haven't believed, who look like they have no interest at all because in their souls they have 
the most guilt. Um, so take note, number two. Take note. The most religious of Jesus' day, the Pharisees rejected him, putting him on a cross. So what do we do with this? So the, the most religious of Jesus' day, the Pharisees rejected him, putting him on a cross. So what do we do with this, number five? Since every per kind of person will believe, since every kind of person will believe, receiving Jesus as the Christ, you should be indiscriminate. That was really the blank there, but I didn't want to make you spell that. <laughs> You should be indiscriminate, be indiscriminate in telling others that Jesus is God and forgives sins. Be indiscriminate. Freely, Steve, offer the gospel. <laughs> we talked about that in Sunday school. Freely offer the gospel. You don't know who will believe. We don't know whose names are written in the book of life. But freely offer the gospel because you just never know who will believe whether they're very immoral or like I was very prideful and very uh, righteous and, and clean and moral and all that kind of thing I was. And who would have known that when I was confronted with Jesus has died for my sins, that I knew my sins, that I knew my pride and I, I knew all the things and all the hatred in my heart and all the lust that was there. Who would have thought? Um, you know, eighth grade, everything was going for me, despite puberty. <laughs> Things were going well. You know, in seventh grade, I was Valentine's Day king. That meant I was the most popular boy. Uh, and there I was um, 10 months later, and, and my sister shares indiscriminately with arrogant little John um, the gospel. And I see Christ died for me, and I needed it. Um, so share indiscriminately, tell everyone that G Jesus is God and that he forgives sins. Don't sort out who you're going to talk to about the gospel. Don't make a category of most likely, likely, and least likely. Don't do that. Um, speak to Jesus to whomever, whenever there is an opportunity, regardless of who or what that kind of person is, regardless of what kind of situation you're in, regardless of what your relationship with, with that person is, you may be the person they just happen to hear something from and some word, some errant word out of your mouth as you talk about Jesus may strike the chord that God from the foundation of the world would have you speak that would cause them to believe. And so be indiscriminate. Don't worry about, oh, they're far from Christ. I'll have to teach them all these things. Just talk, just say something there and that may be the thing that breaks the camel's back so to speak that brings that person to repentance unto life and saving faith so a there just to summarize this you should not hesitate to tell jesus to a particular kind of person because you think he or she won't be interested okay so don't hesitate you should not hesitate to tell jesus to a particular kind of person because you're thinking he or she won't be interested are they spiritual are they crass? Are they Hindu, Indian? Uh, are they Buddhist? Are they Asian? Are they Arab? Are they rough looking? Are they Jewish? Are they immoral? Are they partiers? Are they foul mouthed? Are they married three times? Are they promiscuous? Whatever. Jesus saves every kind of person and you never know when. You may be getting water at a well in the middle of Samaria. And this person that you say, you throw out this line, if you knew who is talking to you, I'd give you living water. All of a sudden, she's interested in living water. She's interested in where to worship. She's interested, interested in the Christ. Boom. Who would ever guess? Not the disciples. And then B, you should not, not think that Jesus won't give life, light, and belief to any certain kind of person. That is, in this era, he will save people of every kind. He'll save people of every kind. Um, so our summary, our summary. John the Baptist came to make the road for Jesus arriving to save his people straight and smooth so that he could reach them easily. 
to connect, that's your blank, to connect Jesus. John the Baptist came to connect Jesus uh, uh, to the, per it should be to the persons to whom he'd give eternal life. He came to connect Jesus to the persons to whom he'd give eternal life. Secondly, uh, you too and the church, that's our business. We should be connecting, connecting persons with Jesus indiscriminately freely offering the gospel and, and uh, never knowing who's going to take it. And then lastly, speak of Jesus, speak of Jesus, knowing that any kind of person, knowing that any kind of person may believe.